My name's Chris Davis, and welcome to Model Office's Science of Compliance fifth podcast, where we are showcasing that governance, risk, and compliance doesn't need to be like a visit to the dentist, but can support sustainable and profitable practice. In this episode, we're delighted to have Intelliflow's Chief Executive Nick Etop discussing how practice management technology can enable professional practice. So let's listen in. Hello, my name's Chris Davis and welcome to the Mo podcast, The Signs of Compliance. And here we are on our fifth episode where we're aiming to again debunk the myths around compliance being a business prevention unit and inhibitor to show how compliance can enable your business to not only survive but thrive, particularly now through difficult times. On this episode, we're delighted to welcome our next guest, Nick Etock, Chief Executive of Intelliflow, the industry-leading back-office practice management technology um, intelligent office, to better understand practical experience in building successful back-office technology against the background of increasing regulations, risk and governance. Nick, hi. Hi, Chris. How are I'm you? very well, thank you, and welcome on board. We're delighted to have you. How's things? How how are you coping with the uh, this strange new world that we're in? Yeah, no, it's um, it's 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 challenging, but um, uh, in truth, we're not too bad. Lots of uh, lots of people having far more challenging times. I'm sure uh, our, our our biggest issue at the moment is our uh, we just become empty nesters as of September October as our kids went to to university. So we're just experiencing. Uh, empty nestism, if it, as it were, in a That's lockdown, a, which yeah. is uh, which is interesting. That's a huge change, isn't it? Huge dynamic shift. Yes, yeah, and how yeah, how are they coping with university during during lockdown and uh, the pandemic? Yeah, I think um, it's it's it's. Uh, I I feel kind of sorry for them because uh, you know I think back to my university time and it was a. Uh, First year particularly was a was a time of meeting lots and lots of people, and of course they're all they're all a bit restricted in that. Um, but they're you know they're making as good a job of it too, and uh, uh, and enjoying it at the same. Well, time. I'm sure that sure they are. They're 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 very adaptable and resourceful at that age. Um, you know, yeah. so uh, I remember yeah when I was at university, I went to Manchester University, and that freshers' week was uh, was a bit mad. So maybe <laughs> maybe yeah. it's not a bad thing. Um, okay, so. Um, just, I'd, I'd like to start really by um, learning a bit more about your background um, for our listeners, and um, and I know a lot, a lot of our listeners will have obviously know in, in intelligent office and IntelliFlow and the good work you do. Um, but it'd be helpful to, to to learn a bit about your good self and your background and how you you came into the industry, and then talk a little bit about your journey to where you are today. Yeah, sure. I mean, so my, my background is probably a bit circuitous to the industry, but and it was rooted more in technology. I was uh, I was a geek from a, a pretty pretty early age, um, fascinated as a school kid by um, as some of you some of your listeners may remember those uh, those of a, a similar age by the ZX Spectrum from um, Clive Sinclair that came out in the sort of uh, in in the early eighties. I think it was something like yeah. that. Uh, and I started getting interested in um, interested in the programming language behind that, and so I started putting together with a, with a, with a friend some some games um, that we that we wrote in a, what was called Z80 machine code, which uh, thankfully I don't have to go back to. I don't know how I did it at that age, but uh, um, and so yeah, so we wrote some number one selling games um, uh, in the UK, which was great. We were top top of the charts at the same time as curiosity killed the cat if you remember i those do guys. remember those guys um uh, 
Um, they're, they're slightly better looking than us, but there you go. Um, Speak for yourself. We, um, <laughs> yeah, I am. I sure genuinely am. <laughs> um, the, so, 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 you know, I did that for a few years. And, and as I say, I really, really enjoyed the technology side of it. Went to university myself, went to, to, to Birmingham University where I had a, uh, had a great time. Um, sort of experimented around then with sort of setting up businesses. I, I tried to, to uh, try to write screenplays for, for a few years. It mm. turned out I wasn't very good at that. Um, did um, various auctioneering, which I was, uh, which was, I was actually okay at, um, but then got back into technology, business technology, and really in the mid nineties, and uh, which I think was a good time. I did some IT consulting and, and one of the businesses I met in, um, I think about 97 uh, was a financial advice business called Interalliance, if you remember, remember those guys. Yeah. And um, I got to know that the team there pretty well. I was building a technology platform at the time and it seemed to come together as a, as a, as a good thing to do. We thought we could take that technology platform and create um, essentially a, a back office to scale across, uh, across the UK. Interalliance had a, had a range of offices all around the UK and we needed something that could scale across that. So that sort of became the early foundations, if you like, of, of IO mm. in, the, in, in the late 90s, uh, maybe early noughties, that sort of time frame. Yeah, time thanks frame. for that. And um, what, um, what would you say the biggest challenges you've had uh, when you came up with the, the IO idea bringing it to life and then and how did you overcome them yeah i suppose there were two phases so we did sort of io um so basically Intelliflow, as a, as a as the company you know everyone knows today was founded in 2004 as a as a kind of a standalone entity through an mbo that we took out of out of interalliance so we we kind of had two phases as a startup we had the phase before going out uh, going out on our own um, which was largely um, in, in those days was largely concentrated around ensuring that we built product that would suit interalliance, but also had a very strong SaaS mentality to it. And what I mean by that, SaaS is uh, as an acronym is S A S Software as a Service. Um, and you know, you think that the big SaaS providers in the world that people will have heard of are companies like Salesforce and others. And essentially, what it means is is that there's a web-based service that delivers the the, the product offering, whatever it is. Uh, and there's just one version of the code, and that can satisfy thousands and tens of thousands of of, of users. And so, some of the challenges with doing that, particularly back in the in the in the early noughties, was about ensuring that we kept to a very strong product discipline of ensuring that whatever we built wasn't bespoke, nothing bespoke got into the product. Because uh, for me, that's, that ends up invariably becoming the death of software. If it goes down a bespoke branch, yeah. you need to constantly remind yourself that the product is there for all. And while certain features may be used by some rather than others, that's got to be done in a configurable manner rather than, rather than bespoking the product. So, so that was challenging. And uh, bizarrely, one of our biggest challenges uh, challenges actually outside of that in those early days was just the simple cost of using the internet yeah um you know we kind of take that for granted a bit now as a, you know in, internet access is pr pretty affordable and you know has become a basic utility for for, for, for all of us uh, indeed um when the kids were back back at home you know the power going off was actually less impactful for them than 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 the internet uh, mm -hmm. internet activity not working on their mobile phones or whatever because uh, that that's the device through which you know through which they access the world um 
so but and back then in the early noughties we, we sort of forget about it but the cost of broadband was pretty high we had things like isdn if you remember those yep. dial up before that and it was uh, it was pretty expensive just to surf the net um so that was a big challenge and then we had the conventional challenges as we stood alone of cash flow in the early days and ensuring that you know you can you can pay everyone at the end of the month and uh and but you can carry on investing and it means those, you know those early days for um and most of your listeners will have been through that in their own businesses, you know, are, are, are challenging. Yeah, they are. Absolutely. But that uh, makes it all the worthwhile as you come through, which is, yeah, which is great. I mean, what was your vision for the business? Did you have a vision for the business, a strategic plan and a vision of where you were, where you wanted to take um, in, in Teleflow? Um, so it, it kind of changed in the very early years. So, so, so I started working with financial advisors in the, the late nineties and, and begun, began, to get an understanding of, of what advice meant. Yeah. Uh, in those early days, though, I kind of felt that the, the technology around the industry, the, the industry was um, classified as an industry then rather than a profession, which I think it's more recently become. Mm-hmm. But the industry then was very, um, very fragmented and you know, is often described as a, as a cottage industry, particularly in terms of how the technology was deployed and, and made available. And, and I thought we could make a real difference with a, with a, a web-based service that could drive efficiencies across those, those organizations. And, yep. you know, it was, it was the, you know, that, that standard technology dream of saying we can make things, things better for you and make you more efficient. So you are, our, our users can be more profitable and so on. Um, but as I got to understand advice and, and particularly the value of advice through talking to more and more advisors in the early noughties, I realized that actually, I, th- I think we had a sort of almost a, a more important purpose, and that was by ensuring that the technology we deliver, yes, could drive those efficiencies and make advisors more effective, but do it so that they could actually scale their advice. Because mm-hmm. it is one of the, you know, it's one of the um, the really unfortunate aspects of of um, the, the the profession is that it's difficult, uh, has historically been difficult to scale advice to uh, more people. You know, it tends to be reserved, as we all know, for the high net worth or more wealthy people in society and and, and, and it, it often doesn't reach down to everyone else and uh, and they need it too you know mm. they, they need advice too uh, you could argue that they need advice more so um we hope and our um, our vision and ambition continues to be that through using our technology we can widen the access to advice Great. And you see that in some of our initiatives, like e-advisor index and so on. Yeah, I was just want, well, I was, I was actually going to move on to e-advisor because that that is that was a, it's a great concept. Um, could you just explain to our listeners exactly what that is and your five pillars of benchmarking in your in your technology? Yeah, it's gone up to six now, uh, oh, Chris. Sorry. But uh, no, no, don't worry. Only uh, we only announced it just a couple of a uh, couple of weeks ago, I think, at, at, uh, at our CTG conference. So, so yeah, so. Um, e-advisor index came from a point of view which uh, we, we saw um, a survey um, which was um, written by Fidelity in the States about I think it was five or six years ago something like that now um, where they did a survey of uh, advisors to ask them how well they were using technology and then they correlated that against how well those businesses were doing in terms of turnover and profit and those those, those kind of measures so it was a survey plus access to some financial accounts and what that survey did was it showed that the firms that were implementing uh, and adopting their t- technology more yep. uh, tended to be better performers in terms of in terms of those measures. So we thought that's interesting, but 
rather than do it as a survey, why don't we do it by looking at actually how businesses are, are, are using the software? You know, so today we've got two and a half thousand plus firms um, utilizing the technology. And, they, and because the technology is from a single instance, it means we've got access, uh, albeit anonymized access, to all of the data. So we can see on a firm by firm basis how well they're using the technology. And so we came up with the five now six pillars um, based around the sort of core areas of the system and the advisors were telling us were the core areas that drove a difference into how they ran their business. Mm -hmm. And so e-advisor looks at the data itself, sort of over 3 billion clicks now a year, the data database itself. A, are firms using those areas and are the, which features are they using? And then how well are they using them? So, for example, if they're creating documents, how um, comprehensive are those documents when they're when they're uh, when they're put together? Yeah. Um, if they're using um, uh, some of the fact-finding tools, how 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 comprehensive is the data that's collected, and whether that's through sort of IO or PFP through the G uh, gamify fact-find, all of those kind of errors, and it it brings all of that together. And then, because one of the one of the one of the things that IO does is it manages um, uh, obviously the, the the client database and um, income reconciliation. So so for for, for fees and, and commission where that's appropriate, it uh, it measures all of that. Um, so we're able to see rather than having to go to companies' house to look at companies' accounts, we're able to see things like recurring revenue and um, total revenue. Um, assets under advice per client, uh, number of clients, number of new clients, all those kind of things, which are kind of mm. typical barometers per advisor that you can measure for the health of a business. And yep. we just correlate the two. And um, it's, it's been stunning. It's in our kind of third year now, We've, um, three full years it's been running. And, and each and every year it's shown um, the same basic metric, which is those who adopt the technology more absolutely outperform those who, who adopt it less. Um, and what it's done, I think, is really, really pretty healthy is it's, it's, it's enabled a number of firms to, to put a number on how well they can adopt the technology, knowing that it will then deliver um, great business results. And, and we think, you know, coming back to what you asked me, to, to the point you asked me earlier, Chris, about the vision and the purpose, you know, we definitely see that those businesses who have adopted the tech more, and you see this from the data, have more clients. You know, they've widened mm. their access more clients per advisor that they actively service so they've widened access to advice that's great and um yeah one of the things i mean obviously i've attended many of your conferences the change the game conferences and they've always been excellent and one of the things that always comes across which um is, is important for you know certainly um practitioners in the marketplace to, to kind of realize and i'm sure they know anyway is that technology isn't magic as we always say at model office but constructed well it's a an enabler platform to do things better uh, and more effectively and efficiently um so where you know for example in our world in in the in the grc the governance risk compliance world we're working with the fca at the moment in creating what we what they're calling actually data lakes um where what we what we want to do is streamline regulatory reporting um, you know, so the old Gabriel returns and now the new reg data platform that the FCA have got. Uh, we've built a, you know, financial diagnostic um, resilience test for firms, which helps them through current, you know, the current crisis that get their finger on the pulse for cash flows and so forth. Um, what are your views on, 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 on the data lake idea where, you know, technology can actually pull 
data across and then streamline regulatory reporting to get firms, you know, finger on the pulse, if you like, to understand where they are on, on the GRC front. Yeah, well, um, technology and systems in general are, are, are central to uh, to the ability to deliver um, proper reporting. And whether that's regulatory reporting for the benefit of the, the regulator themselves or to, you know, mm. to, to, to fulfill that need or whether it's for the business. And, you know, I, I tend to look at these things and say, well, think about as much of this as you can in terms of what business benefit can you do rather than just saying, okay, yeah. it's because I've got to, is what business benefit can I do? And, and you can apply that thinking to things like um, uh, non-regulator requirements, so things like GDPR, you know, when that, that, that came through a couple of years ago. Um, GDPR uh, was a, is, a, is a legal requirement, actually, there yeah. in, in terms of, Managing, managing the data, making sure you keep your data up to date, um, ensuring you can give access to your, to your clients and so on, all, all of that kind of stuff. And if you start looking at it through a lens of saying, if by doing these things, I can provide a better service to my clients and or I can run the business more effectively, then that's a really good, good way to look at things. And that's how you start thinking about, actually, how can I, how can I adopt better processes within my business? And, and fundamentally, that means looking at things like compliance as, as ensuring that your processes are kind of built in by design in, into the technology, ensuring that the data gets in there. Data, data is absolutely king here. Um, I know when we started, uh, it's, it's changed, um, thankfully, but in the, in the early days when we started, you know, the typical view of, of fact finding was that people would um, scroll a fact find on a piece of paper and best case, it would get scanned in as an image into the into the, the system, and you know, and that wasn't awful. But what that didn't allow anyone to do was mine and service their clients and understand their clients and show what they show what they've gone through because it's just mm. an image essentially. Um, whereas now, more it's far more common. Indeed, it's uncommon now for people to take that approach. You know, the data tends to get into the system, and that that helps obviously all your reporting, your Gabriel reporting, all your internal reporting. Um, uh, there is data in lots of different places, so bringing it together is 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 one of the challenges. Um, data will always live in lots and lots of places. You know, you, there will never be a situation where all your data starts in one place. But because of the way technology works these days, you can grab data from multiple places and put it into to to your to your um, comment, Chris, into a data lake and or a data lake. To, and use that data lake to analyze the data and produce a consistent set of reporting. Yeah, that, that's 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 key. And what, what one of the things the FCA are working on is is what they're, they're you know they're, they're now calling, thankfully, um, digital regulatory reporting. It was called something like machine executable regulatory reporting before. Um, but but the interesting thing there is that we were talking about all these data lakes and uh, <laughs> the, the, going back to what you've just said regarding the silo nature of, of data, Nick. Is that we we actually came up with it with, with a synopsis that actually it's not a data lake it's rock pools, um, and that, that's where we need to go. Um, we need to we need to get fishing in our rock pools and, and, and crabbing in our in, in the rock pools. But um, I think the the interesting thing about all this is that the the FCA are on it. They realising that they need to hold the mirror up to themselves, as you say, uh, and I think this is an important point that that's come out of that is that it's not just all about the regulatory. Um, directive, you know, um, what we're looking at doing from what we're encouraging firms to look at, for example, is move beyond tick box checklist 
uh, move towards more holistic view of, of how firms are doing across not just the rules, but also as a, as a business uh, and a business strategy moving forward. So because what we, what firms see, if they see the good data and it's showing up, they're actually profitable and they're, they're resilient, obviously going through these times at the moment, then that gives them confidence. Um, as you talked at the, the start regarding, you know, if you're a startup or an SME or, or a large um, business, you, you've got the confidence to reinvest and build. Um, one of the things that we're um, looking at challenges that we're looking at a model office with firms is the professional indemnity insurance issue in the hard market that's currently out there uh, and regulatory levies, which obviously is a big effect on, 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 on financial advisor firms. Do you have any views on that, Nick, and any views on how firms can help, you know, how your, your practice management solution can help? Yeah, and uh, I mean, clearly it's had a lot of press in the in um, dur- during this year, um, mm. probably more highlight- highlighted because of all the the other challenges this year out. You know, obviously in terms of the pandemic and so on. Um, uh, yeah, ultimately, service delivery of whatever serv- whatever it is, whether it's PII or, or, or anything else, does does cost money, and um, uh, and those things tend to cost more, more money over time. So price rises do have happen. But I do think they've got to be proportionate and to, and to deliver some commensurate value for that. So um, I think as far as PII goes, I know a number of firms who use our technology and, and use it well and show the compliance processes and so on do use that in terms of their discussions with their PI insurer uh, when it comes, yeah. comes to, 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 um, to, to setting ne- next year's premium and so on. Um, I would love to get a more joined up way of working. I mean, we've had some conversations as a business historically with a few PI insurers, but it's never really got anywhere. Um, yeah. I'd really welcome a discussion to with with any PI insurers out there who'd like to chat and just see if there's an opportunity for us to 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 make it clearer for them so they can they can take a proportionate view of the marketplace in terms of how people are using the tech to uh, to see how that would uh, you know that could affect the premiums because there is a difference you know if the bus- if it's a business is well controlled <laughs> there should be less risk there yeah sure I, I agree with that and you know one of the things i mean having you know, my, my background is I, I was a financial advisor for 10 years and then moved into wealth management um but uh i'm very keen on this and one of the things we you know we we have worked hard with is a, is a couple of the brokers and the underwriters where they have now agreed in principle it's taken a long time but they've agreed in principle that they will offer discounted regulatory renewal rates pi renewal rates should i say uh, if model office um, scores are improving and they're significantly over time. And that's something, again, because we integrate with IO, that we could have that three-level discussion. Oh, so that'd be fantastic. That's, let's that's, do that. Yeah, let's, let's, let's look at that. that. That's a good one. So let's take a look at, you know, we've been um, looking at, uh, I've mentioned the pandemic a, a couple of times. I mean, how have you managed the pandemic as a business um, and, and looked at the resilience risks that we now face? Um, so a lot of the way in which we deliver our services, not just the technology itself, but the s- stuff that supports it around that. So, so su- support staff, uh, customer managers, all of those, those uh, kind of people within the business. We deliver a lot of our services uh, using cloud-based technology. You know? so, yeah. so actually um, on the day, we actually um, were working entirely remotely before the pandemic broke out simply because we were about to change offices. So we, we all had to work from <laughs> home for a few days. 
Um, yeah, I remember that. Which was, um, in retrospect, quite good because it really tested our processes before we had to. It was literally mm-hmm. only a couple of days before it, but it did, did prove that they work. And, and uh, you know, uh, sadly, we, we kind of haven't been back to the office. Sad, sad in many ways because it's nice to still see people. Virtual virtual conferences and Zoom calls and what have you are, uh, you know, they're good, but they're not they're yep. not they're not great on every single level, and uh, you do need that face to face contact. Um, I mean, interesting. What we have seen is we've um, in the way in which we support the software out to our customers, um, we kind of offer a range of different ways of of, of providing that support. So from phone call to 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 kind of email and um through to sort of live chat and sort of community-based stuff so we've kind of got our traditional way which is the telephone and email and then the what we call the digital support which is live chat and community um and at the yeah. beginning of this year those digital support channels represented 15 percent of all support calls wind forward to today and it's just shy of 60 percent so there's been a massive shift to to some of that digital stuff. And, you know, fundamentally, um, that's for good reasons, because we can deliver a better service. We can deliver it more quickly. Our case resolution is, is significantly up if we go through that route. We can work on a number of cases. You know how these live chat systems work. You can actually work on a number of cases at once. So that means you can deal with more. So it's, it's, it's been a pretty good example, actually, of something that um, – I don't see disappearing at all. In fact, I see it increasing even after the um, after the pandemic is over and we can go back to some some form of normality. Um, and we're doing a number of things like a migration to AWS to improve the flexibility and resilience of our service because usage is up significantly. We're sixty percent usage up over over the last twelve months on on the systems. Um, right. So yeah, so it's uh, um, they've been they've been challenging times but they've been good challenges and they forced us to grow i think good well that that's that's the most important thing and um so, so on, on, a, on a more positive note i mean let's let's take a look at change the game conference i've always enjoyed those conferences and we've done lots of exhibiting there and speaking there um over the last few years um t- tell us about uh, this year because obviously you had to go virtual didn't yeah you? we went went entirely virtual we um uh, so originally it was slated for June of this year, the, the two we do, London, London yep. and Manchester. And um, uh, it became pretty clear that uh, that, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, we, we were really hopeful we'd be able to do a face-to-face in, in the autumn, but that then also became clear that wasn't going to happen. So we thought, you know, a virtual, um, we, wanted, we had lots of things that we wanted to talk about. We had lots of interesting speakers. So we wanted to do something rather than nothing so that, that that's kind of where the virtual conference came around we did it over two yeah. days it was in two hour sessions um there was great interactivity actually which was really nice lots of q a um um there were so many questions we didn't actually have time to remotely answer all of the questions on on the call and we, we've had to go back subsequently to to, to customers with their with their various questions and there's some really good questions amongst them uh, we had some good panel uh, sessions as well. Um, so, so, you know, it was really good. And I think it's, um, I think for, for me, it shows that there's, this is one way of us more communicating more consistently and more frequently out with the, the, the marketplace and, and, and our customers. But it's not going to replace face-to-face. <laughs> you know, so, so when we can go back to a, um, a face-to-face CTG, we will do that. I don't know. Exactly when right. that will be at the moment. Uh, 
Um, that's we're all kind of guessing a little bit there, but you know we will do that. But I suspect we will continue these virtual type um, sessions um, because they are actually they are quite good too. They they they're easier yeah. to, to to bite off in small chunks, as it were. Uh, you can have them as frequently as you like, uh, and you know if 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 only. 500 people turn up rather than a thousand that's okay or if only a hundred rather than 500 or whatever the ratio is it doesn't matter because you can mm. carry on doing it i kind of look at this a little bit about like how i look at advice and you know advice used to be entirely face-to-face -face. it's now also digital but it's not entirely face-to-face -face or entirely digital now it's a little bit of both and i think the same thing is going to go mm. for conferences yeah, I think I think you're right. A hybrid approach or a cyber approach, whatever you want to call it. But um, I, I think I think you, you're quite right there, because um, in, in our world, you know, we used to do an institute directors symposium each year and you, you kindly um, supported one of those. Um, um, and and yet what we've now done is we, we actually wrote at the beginning of the first lockdown um, a handbook for financial advisor, planner and wealth management firms uh, called FinTech and Remote Working. And uh, Intelligent Office actually kindly contributed to that. Uh, and then we've run webinars ever since on it. And we've had really, really good. We've had more on the webinars than we actually had coming to our yeah. symposiums. So <laughs> that's an interesting one. Um, OK, so pointed question for you. What, what do your clients value? Um, so I think, uh, no, it's a good question. Different, uh, the truth is that different customers value different things. You know? so, so our software yeah. does a range of different things. And some firms rely and use some bits more heavily than they, they do other do do other bits of the software. Um, I think also I mentioned the acronym at the beginning, the software as a service, you know, that means we provide software, but we also provide service. And we try to do both well. We think that, you know, that that's important. It's not just about delivering one or the other. Um, we see continual improvement on that as, as a really important thing. Um, software um, software never finishes. You, know, you continue to evolve as the marketplace evolves and as the needs evolve. You know, our own um, market of financial advice has evolved enormously over um, the last 20 years or so. You know, so, um, you know, yeah. particularly more, I would guess, over the, well, I was going to say, you know, RDR was obviously a really, really big shift. But um, I suspect this pandemic may well represent an even greater shift, actually, in terms of how advice mm -hmm. is actually delivered. And as we go, as we go, you know, back to that point on, on 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 hybrid as we as as that becomes more 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 the norm more the norm um i think um customers also value trust you know and a trust that we're going to continue to support the system and it's going to continue to evolve so that we're always going to be moving we see open architecture as a really key bit of that so it's not about us trying to create yep. create a silo mentality you know we would love people to use all the software bits that we've got but if there's a bit that they like uh, more elsewhere and they want that integrated, we should be providing, as we do, an open architecture platform so that can happen. Uh, I think when you get mm. a single software player, a supplier who says, um, uh, you know, it's got to be us or the highway, then that's that's not a great place for the market. Uh, and it's not it's not even necessary yeah. these days with with um, uh, web services and APIs and so on. You can you know you can open up your technology. Sure, absolutely. And, and this brings us on quite nicely, actually, to to um, question that we've got for you about, you know, 
technology, you know, our technology in, in more ways than one, I guess, is a disruptor in the in the GRC space, the governance risk compliance space. I mean, we're not looking to replace auditors by any means, but we're looking to make them more effective and efficient. Um, where do you see your technology as being a disruptor? For example, many people out there have touted that, in, you know, your platform could become a, a platform. Um, you know, is that something that's an, you know, an ambition or way you see the business going? So, uh, so we certainly, and I think you used the expression earlier, actually, Chris, we certainly see ourselves as, as an enabler and an enabler in yep. this, in this particular instance as an enabler to allow platform technology, retail platform technology and advice technology, the kind of stuff we do to work in concert and in harmony. So we think that, that that's pretty important. Um, I've been asked, um, at least a dozen times a year for the last 20 years, when are you going to become a platform? And the answer is still the same. <laughs> uh, we're not. Um, um, but we do want to ensure that the processes by which, by which, you, uh, which you work are as efficient as they possibly can. And, you know, retail platforms are a, a yeah. really important component of that. We're a really important component of that. So we have to work better. Um, and the way, yeah. the way this kind of stuff used to be done is you used to um, – between retail platform and, and, and let's say practice management or back office technology provider, there were um, sort of bespoke integrations done between the parties to try and get that stuff to work. And, and they were pretty expensive. Um, and they, um, and they, because they were bespoke, they, they weren't necessarily, uh, they didn't evolve as much as they should. They would sometimes not work and so on. So what we decided to do a few years ago was, invest in our API infrastructure uh, significantly to allow a world in which third parties, to be honest, whether they're platforms or other technology suppliers, to actually build integrations with our tech that goes right into our, into our technology platform that even sits within the yeah. user experience itself. You know? And I think that still, still remains, uh, um, uh, we still remain as the only supplier in the marketplace, in our marketplace, to do that right down into the, into the screen real estate and the user journeys themselves. Um, so we've, as far as platforms go, we've got APIs that allow account opening, valuations, income statements, transaction history, um, quotes, and so on. So all the way through. Um, and platforms are beginning to make the most of, the, of some of those. I think it's still early days, but there's, there's a lot of really good yep. signs now uh, about, about that coming through. Um, players like... Players from Hubwise to Aegon have all are all investing in different levels of of the, those kind of integrations. Um, we're also seeing some of the sort of tech-enabled newer platform technologies uh, in the marketplace who are already starting to do some of those links. So, you know, I think I think there's some really yeah. interesting times ahead for that. Um, and that API has become a kind of a, a marketplace for adoption. You know, we get 37 million API calls a week through it, so it is used. Yeah, that's great. And, and obviously, the application programming interface of the APIs is something that we've <clears throat> urged the uh, regulator, the FCA, to adopt. Um, and uh, thankfully, on their Reg Data platform, which has replaced the Gabriel platform, they've now got an API. That's so that's fantastic. something that's, that, that's interesting. Yeah, good stuff. OK, coming, coming to final points for, for you. I mean, what, what are the plans, you know, outside these fair aisles? Do you have pl plans to, to look internationally for, 
Yeah, so we are, uh, we're doing some work internationally already uh, in Australia. We're working with yep. some um, uh, early stage customers, yeah, getting, getting them live on, on the technology uh, next year. And, and ultimately, and we see that in a number of other countries uh, happening as well. We're having conversations there. But the way we're doing this is really important. The way we're doing it is by, ins is by ensuring that there remains a single version of I.O., um, and so, yeah. and this partly comes back to my points on, on AWS earlier. So we'll have AWS instances in all the different countries, but they'll all be running exactly the same version. So when we make a deployment, so an enhancement to the software or even a fix of something to the software, that instantly goes to all the other versions. So, you know, so whether it's uh, every, every pound or dollar that we invest in the solution goes directly into into the um into into your version you know whether you're in the uk or or, or elsewhere yeah um and a lot of the requirements are very very similar you know they, they as we're looking around the world and we're looking around those those countries where actually they are more similar than others but the similarity is 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 high pretty much everywhere the the, the process is is mm. is very similar and the needs are very similar indeed great and uh, final question for you, Nick. Blow the doors off, <laughs> I call this. Um, where would you like to see the business in five years? Oh, um, I'd really like to see. So you asked me earlier about our purpose and our vision, and I talked about widening. We see it really to widen access to financial advice. And we, I think we've done that in a small way or a relatively small way in the sense that the advisors who use the technology um, really well absolutely do have more clients um, per advisor and so on. So, so that's good, but it's only a first step along the way. You know, we, I, th I think we need to do more uh, both in Teleflow as a business, but as a, as, a, as a profession to try and expand that, expand that more widely. The, the need is huge. Unfortunately, yeah. this pandemic, one of the, one of the legacies of the pandemic is that uh, advice is even more needed now you know people are going to be going through even more financial hardships unfortunately uh, and a lot of those people are going to be at an end of the marketplace that isn't typically served by the financial advice profession so um, I think we need to work super hard to deal with that um, and I think you know it's yeah. technology is one part of it but it's not the only part understood marvelous well look thanks so much for your time nick very much appreciated and we didn't mention <laughs> no no we probably there's probably another injury that's happened since we started talking <laughs> yeah lost all the back line but there we go well look that's very much appreciated and hopefully i'm sure our listeners would have got lots out of that um, regarding how technology can act as an enabler platform particularly around uh, the compliance uh, elements. So thanks so much for your time. Nick. No, lovely to talk to you again, Chris. Have a good day. Well, that was a great conversation with Nick. Big thanks to Nick for joining us today on our fifth episode. Um, some really important themes that came out of that, I thought. Um, most importantly, uh, technology as an enabler platform. Nick talked extensively about how he and the team at Intelliflow have developed Intelligent Office out to meet their uh, 2,500 plus firms' needs, ongoing needs, and how it is continuously an agile and flexible technology um, to meet ongoing 
demands from a client service point of view and obviously a, a regulatory point of view, which is what we're focused on regarding a lot of these podcasts. The key issue uh, for me um, is, is obviously technology built well is an enabler platform. It helps streamline businesses. It helps uh, firm, uh, firms really service their clients more effectively and efficiently. Uh, and obviously from our side of the fence, it can help them streamline regulatory reports too, so they know that they're compliant and they've got the right governance and risk management controls in place. And certainly that came across with, with, with Nick's points um, around the fact that um, the, uh, the technology through IntelliFlow um, works with the retail advice sector, sector, the wealth management sector, ensures everything works in harmony. Um, the processes work as efficiently as possible. And it helps firms around key areas such as um, putting together, you know, fact finds, workflows, life cycling and, and so forth. Offering bespoke um, pieces of kit isn't necessarily the right way forward, which I thought was interesting. Um, really looking at how um, a SaaS based uh, platform uh, and a cloud based platform uh, can help where it will actually um, send out the updates uh, and distribute the updates to all users as they are uh, worked on by uh, de the developers and the team at IO IntelliFlow. I thought that was really an interesting point. And also the fact that they've now got their API well and, and truly up and running. Uh, we sit on their um, app store and we have model office there and we can vouch for the fact that it, it, you know, it works well and we can pull data in and to run uh, some um, compliance reports on that, particularly around data quality health checking. Um, we've also got um, other areas in the pipeline. And the area that we talked about, which was about the data lake is important because the regulator are very much on that um, and want firms to really look at how they can offer data lakes so that uh, more data is offered, anonymous data is offered, so that um, streamlined regulatory reports across things like, you know, how can we make the efficiencies and save time and money in and around, you know, the new reg data reports that replace Gabriel. Um, working with PII insurers was it was another important point, and that's certainly something I'll be taking away and, and hopefully working with Nick and the team uh, with IO on. Um, Nick has built a great business, um, and I'm always amazed at how passionate he still is. Um, after so long at, uh, at the helm with IO, but that's great to see. He's always a great thought leader. Uh, in the industry and a pleasure and a delight to talk to. So um, thanks so much for listening in and do look out for further episodes where we'll be talking to other enterprising uh, figures in the industry all about how we can make compliance and enable platform for your business.